0: Welcome to another special edition of the ACG Analytics Podcast. This is David Metzner, Managing Partner. We are continuing our podcast series from home during the coronavirus pandemic. As a result of the following is a lightly edited version of a policy call we have already held. We will now proceed with the podcast. David Metzner, welcome to the weekly macro call from Washington, D.C. Today's call, as is in tradition, will be led by Chris Zerinsky, our lead international analyst. Joining Chris is John East, our head of research. None of our research goes out without John's approval. Art Gustavel, John Turek, and Gabby Hefessa, who's an MA executive director of ACG Analytics. With that quick introduction, I turn it over to Chris to lead today's discussion. Chris,
1: Thanks, David, and thanks, everybody, for joining us. As always, I think we should start in Washington, D.C., John East. We are now finally past this stage of pandemic relief discussions. The bill is passed. What's next? Infrastructure is on the horizon. What's the timeline there? And are we expecting, you know, movement by, let's say, mid to late May?
2: Well, good afternoon. I don't anticipate any announcement on a potential infrastructure package next week but I do believe we'll see it shortly, although that deadline has already been extended from the end of February, and so we're heading towards the end of March. But I do think May is more or less realistic. There are a number of internal debates at the White House and within the both chambers of Congress as to how to proceed, and procedure is not epiphenomenal to content. So what does that mean? If Democrats choose, which I believe is the more likely scenario to try to move an infrastructure bill through reconciliation like this pandemic measure, which is to mean that it bypasses the need for Republican support then I think you could get more Green New Deal, so to speak, aspects in the bill, but that's not a short sure thing. There's, there are things that could fall out under the reconciliation rules because it's difficult to enact substantive policy that does not have any direct budgetary effects on the federal budget, and that can be a problem when you're talking about any bill, but especially an infrastructure bill. And if you work with Republicans, I think the cost has to come down, especially if the major potential pay-fors, so to speak, of the legislation are, are going to be reforming the 2017 Signature Republican Tax Plan. So until you settle on procedure, it's very difficult to handicap content.
1: So point taken there, what's the risk in your mind to Democrats falling off of that bill and therefore moving it out of reconciliation and increasing the need for Republican votes?
2: Well, there, there are a lot of Democrats. They're not quite as loud as Republicans talking about the deficit spending that we've been conducting, you know, over the last year under two different administrations, but they are sizable and I would not envy being the whip in the House, neither the Senate, but Speaker Pelosi does not have many votes to spare. So things which may garner votes among the progressive wing of the party can lose votes amongst moderates who are aware of adding to the deficit. And there are not a lot of votes to spare. So it makes the calculation a very delicate one. Understood. So then we'll wait and see, you know,
1: potentially we can get more information towards the end of this month. John Turk, another issue that's dominating Washington, D.C. is an extension from the Fed of the, um, the supplementary leverage ratio set to expire on March 31st, 2021. The exemption, are you expecting the Fed to extend this?
3: The short answer is yes. You know, I think it's kind of gotten one of those things where it's gotten a, a political element to it, which has made it more contentious. And, you know, the Fed always has a desire to avoid, you know, stepping on any political battlegrounds. But I think that, you know, kind of where we are, especially given the recent backup in yield, that, you know, the Fed definitely wants to avoid it unwanted and unwarranted tightening of financial conditions. And, you know, I think given the level, the amount of QE that they're doing and, you know, how much issuance is going to come, it's very important in a policy sense for them to keep big balance sheets, you know, relatively open and able to both facilitate treasury issuance and continue bank lending at the early stages of recovery. So, you know, I think it's, it's pretty much a, a no-brainer. The only question is
1: timing between now and the end of the month. Yeah, so what you're saying is that there's a political imperative to, on both sides, for Democrats, for example, if they have an interest in extending this. Now, moving out next week, we do have a very important Fed meeting. What are you expecting there?
3: Yeah, no. I mean, I think you know one of the big messages for the Fed is what does substantial progress mean? Because the market's looking at this idea of substantial progress, and also being able to forecast. You know, we've seen from sell-side shops like Goldman have say that there's you know they expect unemployment to reach four percent by the end of the year, or have a four handle by the end of the year, and the market's discounting that substantial progress, which would warrant you know uh, in theory a taper. So the Fed really has to qualify uh, what substantial progress means to them. I think we've already seen some pushback last week from. Governors Brainerd and Clarida suggesting that, you know, substantial progress, especially on the employment front, would be much more broad than it traditionally has. And it's not just one employment measure that they would take into account. And I think, you know, for the Fed to get back on side, you know, as we've seen the market pricing uh, a rate increase as early as uh, December 2022, you know, for the Fed to get the market back on side with their desired reaction function, it will be probably very important for them to not only define substantial progress in a more either way, but also kind of get back on side to their growth forecast and, you know, what the policy ramifications of fed forecasts would be because you know as we saw in the December dots their forecast for you know real GDP growth this year is 4.2 percent and the market now is you know debating is it going to be between six and eight so you know I think that there will be a it'll be a big messaging to see when the fed's growth forecast picks up and what the effect that'll have on the forecasted policy horizon in terms of interest rates that will probably be a key thing from a guidance perspective so I I think that once they're able to kind of get growth back in line with the market and still say that means very little for Policy and also define substantial progress, because so that should clear up a lot of the friction between the Fed and the market.
1: The Fed basically has the first opportunity in a year, essentially, to be more dovish than what's currently priced into the market for their policy, because they haven't had an opportunity to adjust their data to the revised expectations
4: of the street.
3: Yeah, no, I think that I think that's a good point. You know, it's for the Fed, it's the first time where the market is really pricing in hikes, you know, in the relatively near term. You know. We're seeing hikes priced within two years. And the Fed has, you know, especially at least since their new reaction function came out in August at Jackson Hole last year, has never really had that battle. So this is really their first opportunity to, you know, quote unquote, whack the pricing.
1: You know, if they get this wrong, is EM the biggest casualty here? Um, yeah, it's certainly easy to say that EM would be you know a pretty
3: significant worry because the Fed is at a pretty critical point now in terms of you know really proving to the market that they're serious about this thing because you know for the if the market is able to ratify and say that okay we're comfortable with the pricing you know in in the one year one year part of the curve that kind of would signal broader things that you know this this new reaction function isn't real and the Fed will you know adjust and they'll cut off all the you know circuit breakers that have traditionally haunted things like EM especially in. In prior taper episodes. So, yeah, I think, you know, if the Fed gets their messaging wrong, EM will be a prime casualty, especially deficit EM, which is already struggling, you know, from Turkey, Brazil, Mexico, etc.
1: uh We can't go past, you know, talking about the Fed without mentioning the ECB today, John. Pretty dubbish. Said they'll pick up pace bond buying. What other takeaways do you have from today?
3: Yeah, no, I think the ECB was very interesting today. I mean, one of the things that they've been challenged with, given the recent backup in yield, is kind of just being able to define favorable financing conditions, which is, you know, kind of what they have set out. And going into today, especially at risk of, you know, Madame Lagarde not traditionally being the best communicator was that, you know, a communication error. And I think that they avoided that kind of by saying that they're going to significantly up their pet purchases over the next few weeks and months. And kind of sets the precedent that, you know, the ECB's their level in terms of where they're comfortable in terms of where rates can go. And I think that that's a pretty powerful message. Now, it didn't go as far as some other ECB governing council members such as Panetta or people like that who have advocated for maybe anchoring, you know, what favorable financial conditions are to what they were in December in terms of bond yields. But I think it did set the precedent that the ECB is not going to tolerate what they call a quote-unquote unwelcome tightening of financial conditions. And that means that it's the, the pressure on the market to, you know, sell European fixed income is going to be very... Thanks.
1: I think we should move now, Bart, over into foreign policy and really this idea that the Biden administration is pursuing de-escalation and uh, mending of relations with many of the U.S. allies that former President Trump exacerbated relations with. Now, first and foremost, we point in the note out that the Biden administration is easing trade conflicts with Europe and the United Kingdom. We also point out that the Biden administration has found at least some solution with South Korea as as suspending and and who pays for and to what degree the U.S. military presence in country. And then outside of that, we've seen a move from this Treasury Department under Secretary Yellen to accept a potentially greater SDR allocation out of the IMF. What's next for U.S. policy now with these allied countries considering this broad idea of rapprochement?
4: Yeah, thank you, Chris. So quickly on on the de-escalatory steps, because let's not exaggerate their importance. In some cases, just a ceasefire. So the, the prime example of that is Airbus Boeing. Between the U.S. and the U.K. and between the EU and the U.K., there's now an agreement to not levy additional retaliatory sanctions for a period of four months. This disagreement is, you know, it certainly transcends this administration, the past administration. It's about two decades old. It's not going to be easy to resolve, but at very least, you know, at the moment, no additional industries are going to be dragged into it punitive tariffs. So there is a long list of transatlantic trade frictions. This was just a very high profile one. So it's positive news in that regard. You mentioned the, the, the agreement with South Korea and at the G20 side from the SDR allocation, which will help a lot of countries like Turkey, South Africa, or Argentina, basically any emerging market with balance of payment pressures all the way down to the likes of El Salvador and Suriname. They also you know, unblocked the global discussion on digital taxes. And that uh, was also a significant 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 change of direction under uh, Janet Yellen. We had anticipated some of this, especially in the transatlantic relationship—a quick turn, you know, back to the Paris Agreement, back to areas of of collaboration, and back to a strong bond. So these are the first steps. Your question as to you know to what end—I think it's critically important. So I think that the first answer there is building a, a bit more of a powerful global coalition to fight the trade practices and human rights practices of China that are anathema to the West. So the treatment of the Uyghurs and on trade, perhaps even building out the trilaterals, the EU, US, adding the UK, adding Korea, and addressing some of the subsidies, some of the dumping, some of the other trade practices of China that are a problem within w, uh, within the WTO. Uh, and then secondarily, having some sort of front and common approach towards Russia is something that the EU and the US are working towards together. The EU, as we've said Prior calls is due to complete a strategic review of its Russia policy late March, so late this month. And you know, we saw some sanctions in response to Navalny. We've talked about how not impactful they are for the Russian economy. There is a sense on both sides of the Atlantic that some more things need to be done on the human rights front. And then finally, Turkey, which is a much more complex topic uh, because they're a NATO member, have the second largest standing army in NATO, and the range of conflicts that they're engaged in is just much longer and wider. Joint approach between the EU and the U.S. would probably also help diffuse some tensions in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, around Cyprus, in the in the Middle East, where Russia and Turkey both have stakes. So, yeah, I think it's early coalition building. And if you ask me, like, to what end are they building these coalitions, or is Blinken attempting, together with John Kerry, to build these coalitions, I would guess, you know, in that order, China, then Russia, and then nothing for a while, and then Turkey.
1: Uh, you, you touched on a bunch of topics there that I want to dive a little bit deeper into. So the U.S.-China relationship is fascinating. In the way that the Biden administration is going to address them, that relationship is also not yet entirely known. What is clear, though, is that there's going to be an attempt to engage. And I say that because now we finally have the first meeting between high-level officials on both sides. It's scheduled for sometime next week, at least to my knowledge, in Alaska. Secretary of State Tony Blinken will be there, and so will foreign minister for, for China and a very high-ranking party official who is um, a close confidant of, of President G. you know, it has been characterized as a strategic dialogue by some. And then Tony Blinken himself pushed back on that and said, this is nothing more than just kind of a, a get to know each other meeting and, sh- and show symbolically that we want talk. So I'm interested to see what comes from that. And it seems like there's a misunderstanding on both sides right now as to what the actual desired outcome is beyond just, you know, a symbolic victory. You
4: know, high-level meetings are super important, but let's also note that they never really stopped. Right under the Trump presidency, there were high-level meetings about trade, including in the Oval Office. You know, an outcome that would indicate that there's an effort towards more strategic dialogue would be actually a resumption of regular working-level meetings. So you know, under Obama, there were quarterly strategic and economic dialogues between Treasury and the Finance Ministry in Beijing. So if something like that were to get resurrected, then you can talk about where, you know, we have a strategic or at least on, on matters on, of economy and trade, we have an, an ongoing dialogue. So if working level dialogues resume under, then you can talk about a resumption of a strategic dialogue efforts. In the absence of that, I think you probably have to take Lincoln on his word on this one is that, you know, he just wants to know who he's talking to.
1: What one thing that's particularly interesting to me, so we're talking about this high level, you know, US China meeting to discuss. There's some interesting things that are happening. In the private sector of both countries, um, one of the outcomes of the National People's Congress, the NPC, which concluded today was a couple things. One is setting a growth target above 6%, and I put quote unquote there, not very clear, but above 6%. And separately, she wants to invest a lot of additional capital into technology, including chip making. Now, from the high level, we have cooperation, seemingly at least a willingness to engage. We'll see how far it goes. But at the private sector level. An interesting announcement coming out of this week was that the China Semiconductor Industry Association, so like a broad group of chip makers, is going to work together and and host their own strategic dialogue with the Semiconductor Industry Association in the United States. This is to discuss standards, technology, you know, integrated supply chains. And the area was a particular target for President Trump. And President Biden is that's to really continue a hard line on this industry. Now, how do you reconcile, it seems to me, a positive sign to see industry cooperation at that type of level on such a sensitive area for both countries and both economies?
4: There are some areas where the rest of the world needs things from China, and this is an area where China needs things from the rest of the world. So I don't, I'm not surprised to see them play ball. They, they'd like to be more independent technologically, and they don't have semiconductor independence. Let's scrape the paint off and note that the China Semiconductor Industry Association is the Chinese Communist Party, or the government. You know, it's a spokesperson group, so I'm, my initial concern would be about intellectual property theft and, and related topics. In what I took away from the party congress and the other meetings this was, Last week was a desire for a you know, much more geostrategic independence, uh, which, you know, now we have the U.S. pursuing trade policy to protect middle income jobs, the EU pursuing strategic independence on, on everything from vaccines to pharmaceuticals to technology to digital. So if one way to look at this is to say there's three big blocks, the three biggest blocks of the global economy are pursuing independence in all these critically important areas.
1: you you mentioned vaccine. Vaccine diplomacy has been very, very beneficial for China in gaining influence. And so that form of soft power shouldn't be underestimated moving forward. I was going to make one last point, just thinking, you know, theoretically about where does the U.S.-China relationship go from here, assuming that the meeting next week goes well and there's no significant blow up. I don't know why there would be necessarily at an introductory meeting like that. But there are significant upcoming events domestically for China and specifically for President Xi. He's going to be beginning his re-election campaign, if you will, which will conclude if end of 2022. And they also have, for example, like the the Winter Olympics upcoming. Do these potentially distract from some of Xi's foreign policy agenda? Does the need to make sure that everything goes well domestically mean that perhaps he'll have a softer stance towards the United States and some of these other conflicts?
4: I would put a very nice bow on it. I think you know, they're not interested in escalating, for example, about Taiwan right now. That would be extremely unlikely in my mind. We have to remember that before the pandemic, this year, 2021, was supposed to be the big year for China. You mentioned the Winter Olympics, the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party. They were well along in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative of doing infrastructure-based diplomacy around the world. It was really gaining a lot of influence, like in the UN Security Council and getting a lot more countries to vote with them in international fora. Obviously, the pandemic threw a wrench in that like it did in in everything else. I don't think there'll be an escalation at this weekend's meeting. I agree with you, the one in Alaska, but I expect Blinken to be quite candid and clear with them about the South China Sea, about Taiwan, about Uyghurs, about human rights broadly. The man can speak quite bluntly, so I I expect that to happen. I don't think there'll be much of a Chinese reaction. You know, We we all know where the fault lines are. I I don't see why Blinken would pull any punches even if the meeting is introductory.
1: Now, finally, to the, to the last area that I think is going to be particularly interesting in how the Biden administration handles the relationship is with the U.S. presence in the Middle East writ large. We've seen an emphasis on bringing Iran back to the negotiating table, and we've seen an emphasis to kind of distance themselves from Saudi Arabia, despite obviously, you know, the importance of that relationship historically and moving forward to the United States. I say that because I'm thinking about, for example, these, these attacks on the Rastanura infrastructure, energy infrastructure, the lack of a forceful U.S. Response to the Iranian, you know, tacitly approved Houthi rebel attacks there. If Iran wants to get back to oil markets and you know have some sanctions reprieve, is supporting those types of efforts is that counterproductive to that effort? And how does the administration now reconcile what has been a relatively weak response, particularly in light of the MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, Khashoggi report, which was very damning? How do you balance the two because they're indirect conflict to each other? You can't really push forward with new ties with Iran at the same time as you. To distance Saudi Arabia while Iran is sanctioning attacks on the Saudi Arabian infrastructure. It just seems to me like a very difficult situation to enact actual policy that makes a difference.
4: Yeah, I think you're right exactly. Threading the needle here is super complex. And I have been saying for months, and I continue to believe that you know either the vice president or the secretary of state will visit Saudi Arabia soon before JCPOA talks restart. Efforts need to be made on, on both sides. On, on Iran, I think... Its behavior is also staking out an initial negotiating position. In whatever renegotiation of JCPOA is going to look like, Iran is incentivized to misbehave in the next few weeks before getting to the table, just to extract concessions at the table. In the end, you know, they ask their opinion. They say, look, we were in compliance with the international agreement that we signed, and then the U.S. pulled out. So the U.S. will have to compromise first. Obviously, that's not reality, but. It, hurts them nothing to, to make it look like that's the reality and, and stake out a difficult position.
0: I would like to thank everyone for joining us today. I'd also like to thank our team of analysts for offering their unique insights. You can also follow us on Twitter for further insight into capital markets and the political economy. If you wish to reach out for more information, please email us at research at analyticscom Everyone have a good day. Thank you very much.